Graffiti is originally derived from the Greek word graphian, which means to write. But when the word was adopted into Italian, it forked into multiple words, and one of them, graffiato, takes a more literal interpretation of the concept, meaning scratched, which was how a lot of writing was done back in the day, when writing often meant scratching marks into tablets. So this word presumably referred to scratched writing initially because of that etymological heritage, but it eventually broadened in scope to include writing scratched into any surface, including walls, and from there grew further to include images scratched into those same walls. And to be clear, graffiti, the singular of which is graffito, though that term is seldom used in modern English, outside of the archaeological world anyway, Graffiti has been around for a long, long time. There are hieroglyphic image words scratched onto the walls of ancient Egyptian buildings. There's graffiti on chapels from the Middle Ages in Poland and chiseled into the catacombs of Rome. The only known surviving examples of a type of proto-Arabic language called Sepheic are scratched into rocks and boulders in a desert that straddles southern Syria, eastern Jordan, and northern Saudi Arabia. And interestingly, the famous eruption of Mount Vesuvius that preserved moments of everyday life in Pompeii, even as it snuffed out the city's inhabitants, also preserved some of the graffiti on the walls in that area, with inscriptions ranging from curses and spells, to political slogans and declarations of love, to advertisements for a local sex worker who is apparently very beautiful and in high demand, alongside a simple illustration of a phallus with the caption Mansueta Tene which means, roughly, handle with care. Overlapping with graffiti in interesting ways is the world of street art, which, depending on who you ask, is sometimes defined as just nicely done, more intentionally created graffiti, or sometimes as art created in public, maybe because it isn't accepted by the mainstream art world, or maybe because that publicness is part of the statement being made by the artist. It wouldn't be the same, accomplish the same things, if it were put in a gallery instead of on the side of a building. Just as early rock and roll is tough to distinguish from country music, and just as early video game consoles were actually just computers that happened to have games on them, most early street art is kind of just graffiti, but with a purpose statement attached, and generally created by an artist who creates it as art, and who has an art career and evolutionary pattern to their work rather than signatures meant to show who holds sway over a particular block, who loves who, topics and purposes that have generally been the focus of graffiti, but not entirely, and not all the time, for most of history. That overlap in mind, though, there does tend to be a different vibe to most street art when compared to even really nice graffiti because of the depth of the work. These pieces often go beyond the superficial, both in terms of quality and in terms of statement, when compared to the more often off-the-cuff, look-at-me-I-was-here nature of most, but not all, graffiti. Even works that might superficially seem like more of the same words on walls painted by spray paint, like Rene Moncada's I Am the Best Artist, which was a piece that just had that phrase emblazoned across it, I Am the Best Artist, in colorful block letters, along with some colorful patterns and his signature. 
That work is of a piece with his other work, including one called Sex and Violence, which featured a Christian cross with an image of female genitalia on top of it, and a performance work of sorts that involved him sending out official-looking invites to a bunch of art world people and press, inviting them to the unveiling of a new work he had going in at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. When attendees showed up, he announced that he was claiming the grill over the museum's air conditioning system as his own work, in the tradition of Marcel Duchamp, who declared that artists could claim found objects as artwork, and that as artists, they could present such things in a new light, change viewers' perspective of them, and thus they were adding something to those everyday objects by their very declaration. So Moncada declared that he, as an artist, was claiming this air-conditioning grill as his work, and thus continuing that rich tradition. This performance was just that, a performance, but it also made a statement about those other statements made by people who became famous artists previously, like Duchamp, who you might know for what is probably his most famous work, entitled Fountain, which is just a urinal submitted as artwork, and which has been displayed as high art, in the same way the Mona Lisa is displayed as high art ever since. It's somewhat poetic, for the purposes of this discussion anyway, that part of the argument in favor of Duchamp's fountain being art, rather than just a found object that we're for some reason treating as art because it was presented by someone who purports to be an artist, is that the name and date, R. Mutt, 1917, was scribbled on it before it was submitted. In some ways, that's exactly what's happening with both graffiti of the traditional sort, generally just words scribbled on a public surface seen by all, that surface changed by those words, either making it more aesthetically pleasing or the opposite, and with street art, where the same thing is done, but often with a higher degree of skill and quality, depending on what metrics of success we are using to judge such things. These things have been paralleled in the more formal, respectable art world for ages. It's just that we call them other things. And typically, that art is stored, is housed, is displayed in more formal environments, places where the works can be protected from outside influence and harm which grants those works a respectable veneer and a sense of value. Put the same works in public places, however, and there's always the chance that they will be stolen or defaced. They'll have new paint put over their existing paint, or new etches, new carvings, which change or remove the meaning of their current lines and words added to their faces. What I want to talk about today is an upcoming product that parallels many of the traits of graffiti and street art, and which may, as a consequence, raise many of the same issues and questions that are often raised when discussing these two concepts, while also introducing new complexities and opportunities that have not been available with real-world public works thus far. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from TechCrunch, and it's entitled Minecraft Earth Makes the Whole Real World Your Very Own Blocky Realm. Minecraft is a video game that was released in 2011 by a company called Mojang, 
It was created by a video game developer named Marcus Parshan, who built it to be what's called a sandbox game, a term reserved for games that allow players to build things, to mess with the environment by changing it, destroying it, or adding to it. And in a lot of cases, it refers to games that might have more traditional game-like objectives, beat this boss, rescue this person, win this war but also, or even primarily, have a looser, more player-defined purpose. In Minecraft's case, there is a storyline that you can play through. Actually, there are many storylines, since there have been many variations of and add-ons to this game over the years. But the thing that made this game so popular is the massive, versatile sandbox in which you can play when you immerse yourself in this blocky world. And the world of Minecraft is blocky by design. At the most fundamental level, playing Minecraft involves mining materials like stone and metal and wood, and then using these materials to build things. Some players use these resources and the ability to build using what amount to 3D pixels, blocks of color or texture with different properties, to construct things that make sense in the Minecraft world, fortifications, tools, things like that. Others, though, go all in with the sandbox mode and build, for instance, scale models of the Acropolis in Athens, an accurate model of Notre Dame Cathedral, an explorable version of the trench run scene from Star Wars, cities from Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, NASA space shuttles, the late Twin Towers, levels from video games, a pre-sinking Titanic, the balloon-hefted flying house from the Pixar movie Up and imagined worlds, buildings, and realities from fiction, pop culture, and the creator's own minds. So alongside the more traditional gaming modes of Minecraft, the ability to play in this kind of sandbox to create and build and imagine really took off. And part of why it proved to be so popular was that in addition to building these big impressive things, you could also share them. You could allow your friends or strangers from the internet to download your maps and walk around them. You could share your creations with the world in public. By March 2012, about a year after its release in January of 2011, Minecraft had sold 5 million copies. It earned nearly $240 million in revenue in 2012, and in 2013 the company's Xbox-only exclusivity agreement with Microsoft expired, and the game became available across PlayStation platforms, in addition to its computer-focused versions, including one that was built for the Raspberry Pi, a cheap, low-powered processor meant for tinkerers and students. So this game was kind of all over the place. Their profits increased to $330 million in 2013, and by 2014, Minecraft's developer, Marcus Parshan, tweeted about his desire to move on from the stress of having created a game that had become so big so quickly. He basically used Twitter to ask if anybody wanted to buy his shares of Mojang, the company he co-founded to create the game. And although several companies, including Blizzard Activision and Electronic Arts, very big gaming companies, said they would be interested, he ended up selling the company to Microsoft because he had dealt with them previously. Chief executive of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, later said they were keen to buy Mojang and Minecraft because they wanted it for the HoloLens, an augmented reality project that they were developing and which they thought would benefit from having Minecraft on offer at release a killer app for a new product category. 
Mojang continued to release the other games they already had in development after being purchased by Microsoft, but Mojang's founders left the company at that point and handed the keys to the kingdom over to the tech behemoth, giving them the ability to go wild with the brand and potentially destroy it if they want it. That seems to be a common story in this space, when an indie success is bought by a well-moneyed entrenched power within an adjacent or similar space. In this case, though, the opposite seems to have happened. Microsoft invested in Minecraft in a big way, expanding upon what was already working, getting the core version of the game out to every possible platform, including updating the Linux and Mac versions of the game, something not everyone was expecting due to Microsoft's traditional focus on their Windows operating system. They also released new campaign-like stories for the Minecraft gaming world, a free version of the original Minecraft classic game, and most recently, as mentioned in this article, a new game called Minecraft Earth. Now what makes Minecraft Earth special compared to other Minecraft iterations is that it is an augmented reality spin-off of the core Minecraft game. Pokemon Go is probably the most well-known currently available game of this genre, but it's not alone. Pokemon Go developer Niantic began as an internal startup within Google before spinning off into its own thing when Google restructured its corporate umbrella into Alphabet, containing Google as one of its many sub-companies and rearranging its many projects into a collection of new silos. Niantic was intentionally spun off with an investment from Google alongside Nintendo and the Pokemon Company the company that owns and oversees the Pokemon brand across all product and service types. Niantic's first real game, Ingress, the follow-up to a product called Field Trip, which was a location-based app that pointed out things in the world around you and was only available in a limited way, but that first real game, Ingress, did pretty well. Pokemon Go, though, was their first real big mainstream success. The game, which is playable by anyone with an Android or iPhone smartphone, involves walking around, collecting Pokemon in the wild, and battling other Pokemon trainers at Pokemon gyms. The walking around component is actually pretty important, as that's how you find new little monsters to collect, and that's how you evolve new Pokemon and find other trainers to fight. The augmented reality portion of the game is actually super simple and not even required to play. But if you choose to allow augmented reality when you open the app, you can essentially hold the camera up, see the world on your phone, the real world, and see the computer-generated Pokemon overlaid onto that real-world image as if it was actually there, standing in front of you. This game, simple as it is, has been wildly successful, both in terms of popularity and in terms of revenue. Nintendo, despite only owning about a third of the Pokemon company and some undisclosed amount of Niantic, saw their stock balloon and have gained billions to their overall market cap since it was released in July of 2016. The game has also brought in a reported $2.5 million per day, adding up to over $3 billion in total revenue as of late 2018, the fourth highest of any game on the market. This, despite having fairly lackluster reviews as a game from most gaming review sites and magazines, it's just not considered to be very good according to the traditional metrics of what makes a video game a good video game. In terms of popularity and cultural impact, though, 
it has been wildly successful, which is part of why Niantic's upcoming projects, including the massively anticipated Harry Potter Wizards Unite, which will purportedly be similar in many ways to Pokemon Go, but will be set in the world of Harry Potter, will ask players to learn spells and find artifacts, and will allow anyone with a smartphone to wander around the real world and find mythical, augmented reality beasts, friendly and malevolent characters from that fantasy world, and presumably many of those people will grow addicted to their growth within the game, similar to how some players have gotten hooked on their Pokemon Go accounts. Minecraft Earth is similar to Pokemon Go in that it will be an augmented reality game and that it is predicated on an existing game with existing and popular intellectual property. It's different in that it will apparently focus way, way more on the augmented reality aspect of things rather than using it as kind of a neat visual gimmick and an excuse for users to wander around to real-world locations to collect in-game items. It's also different in that the intellectual property it's based upon comes from Minecraft, which has become, as was recently announced, the best-selling game of all time, based on sales figures that we have available anyway. More than 176 million copies of this game have been sold worldwide, which is remarkable. And the fact that it may actually have been outsold by some other games with trickier-to-track sales figures, like Tetris, which has been sold on pretty much every device with a screen that has ever existed, does not diminish that accomplishment one bit. This is a historically popular game with an incredibly popular sandbox feature, and that feature that ability to build, and the familiar interfaces users have become accustomed to will be bolstered by this release, if all goes according to plan. A lot of what we know about this game right now is based on secondhand information, as it was only announced in May of 2019, and I am recording this in May of 2019, so some of this is speculation or based on limited exposure that has been given to a few industry journalists, a closed beta to work out kinks in the game is planned for the summer of 2019, but at the moment, we only really know what was in that announcement and the few interviews and write-ups that have been published since that announcement. The bulk of the game, though, seems to be centered around that building component. You can build your structures just like in previous iterations of Minecraft, but now you can build them in the real world. You can see them on your coffee table, in your yard, or in the park down the street. There will be adventure components to the game which will allow you to complete puzzles and specific building tasks, but a lot of the focus seems to be on building neat things in an open sandbox, and then sharing those things that you have built with others. And that's part of what's cool here. Say you do build a neat castle with the Minecraft resources that you've collected, and you set it down in that park down the street. Now, when anyone playing the game walks through that park, they will see your castle. And when you go there to build that castle, you will see other things that have been built by other players. The world around you when you peer through the lens of your smartphone, and potentially in the future through the lens of your HoloLens or other augmented reality device, you will see that additional layer of information atop the real world. Gathering resources for your creations also seems to be based on real-world objects. They've mapped out the real world planet Earth using open map data to figure out where there are lakes and streams and forests and fields and homes and so on. And that has been replicated in the game to inform what materials are available where. So when you're considering what to build, part of your consideration might be what resources are available nearby based on where there are trees to gain more wood 
and how long it will take you to get to that lake on the other side of town so you can find the blocky squid creature that you've been trying to collect. So we've got an immensely popular game that's being converted into a real-world interactive version, which allows that sandbox to expand to the size of the planet. You can play worldwide, collect resources, and have adventures anywhere you go, and you can plop down things you've built anywhere you want. And those things can be seen and experienced and enjoyed by everyone else on the planet as well, anyone who walks by them in this augmented reality world. That by itself is pretty compelling, and it makes a good case as to why this game will probably be fairly groundbreaking, potentially even more so than when Pokemon Go landed, and you might see a lot of the same social consequences after its release. More people going outside, walking about, trespassing into places that they shouldn't be to get rare resources, and so on. Even more interesting than the direct game industry consequences of this release, though, is the potential that Minecraft, and Microsoft's backing of it, could be a first step in a universal, or at least more ubiquitous and comprehensive, augmented reality-based 3D graphics suite, akin to something like Photoshop, but for three-dimensional, in-situ, blended reality objects, that then, when completed, can be applied to locations and objects in the real world for others to interact with. In other words, this game could provide the interface that companies have been looking for, allowing more people to get augmented reality and to interact with augmented reality spaces, giving them the ability and desire to then build more AR-based creations, which people will understand how to use and will be familiar with when it's released. And that helps prevent a situation in which you might have a big space to build, but no one building and no one checking out what's been built because nobody understands the tools or how to use them. This could also give those same people a way to create their own fundamental AR resources, their own content beyond mere blocks, which Microsoft would then be the purveyor of, the owner of potentially, or at least the gatekeeper of, which makes them in some ways the gatekeeper of what could become an operating system for an always-on internet layer we may come to interact with throughout our day even as our devices evolve and change over time. Minecraft Earth, then, could be part next-step video game success story, part money-generating machine, as the previous iterations of the game have proven to be, but also part next-generation interface for all manner of augmented reality infrastructure, from the way we navigate through and engage with objects in AR software, to the way we place objects, define objects in space, switch between layers to see different versions of a particular location with different stuff in those spaces, to the way that we share files for all of these things, from objects to resources to layers to location metadata. Now, as I mentioned, a lot of this is speculation at the moment, and it could be that the game doesn't do terribly well, the game remains just a game, or someone else steps in. Niantic, maybe, or its original owner, Google, or one of the many other players in the burgeoning augmented reality industry. And they come along and release a better mousetrap, with superior controls, more intuitive interfaces, or some leapfrogging technology that allows them to define what AR looks like and feels like to most people, and how we engage with this technology that has been around in various permutations for years now, but which has yet to hit the mainstream in a groundbreaking, parallax-shifting way. Minecraft Earth could do that, or someone else could do that. There's no destiny here, even if Microsoft would seem to be in a good position because of the variables this particular project has established for them in this space. 
In the intro, I talked a bit about graffiti and public art, and when I imagine the world post-Minecraft Earth, or something like it, whatever eventually manages to build the right interface and technology combination to get the mainstream interested and involved in this facet of the tech world, I imagine a world in which more of us are creating these types of works, these publicly displayed creations, and where, as a consequence, more of us will have this new type of audience. Greater access, bigger megaphones, or at the very least, different types of megaphones than we had before. This is kind of like what happened in the early days of the web, when Web 2.0 came along, and suddenly more people than ever before had the means to write and have their words read, produce and have their videos viewed, shoot photos, and have their work ogled by millions of people from around the world. Before those new technologies were widely available, this was essentially unthinkable. Except for the fortunate few who'd had gatekeepers and curators step in and select their work to be seen by the masses. New code and new hardware and new information delivery infrastructure allowed us to break some of those walls, and we are living with the consequences of those changes, positive and negative, today. I imagine this shift, if and when it arrives, will be similar. Except instead of these works being displayed on blogs and social networks, comment sections and chat rooms, they'll be displayed on the walls of grocery stores and tucked amongst tree branches. They'll be in streets and in the sky, on trains and buses and cars. They will be placed in museums amongst artwork selected by experts, where millions of dollars have been paid to acquire and present and protect them. And these digital works will be right there next to them. Their quality unfiltered, their birthright unknown, their presence previously unimagined but now undeniable. I do suspect that we'll see layers of such information. So you could turn on your private friend layer and only see work created by you and the people that you know personally in your environment. You could then shift over to public layer 1 and see the first round of creations, or public layer 60, with work that was born later, after the first several dozen layers were full, new digital real estate opening up periodically to free up space, some with themes and limitations, McDonald's layer 13, Apple layer 5, some perhaps exclusive, accessible only to residents of a particular neighborhood, or members of a particular club. You could pay to access private, professional, artist-only layers, or a layer created by someone who you support on Patreon or similar services. Moving such work into the real world makes it easier to create art that comments upon and interacts with the real world. You could create something lampoonish and attach it to the Capitol building, or something ironic that lives next to the local coal power plant. You could create an example building that you hope to have built someday, and which you are applying to make manifest in the real world, visible ahead of time, in situ, for anyone who wants to see where it would actually be at a potential future date in this augmented reality world. You could also imagine how things could be and build that. Allow people to walk through your ideal architectural utopia, or a pedestrian-only version of your city. You could create M.C. Escher-like fantasy scapes, illustrate a dream that you had once, shared with others so that they can experience the same, just by walking down the street, and engage in full-scale recreations of historical battles or other meaningful, important moments in human history. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, the assassination of JFK, or the moment humanity first walked on the moon. You could be there, next to the moon lander, as the astronauts descend. If someone chooses to build these things, these experiences, 
and something I feel pretty confident about, especially seeing all the work that's already been done within Minecraft, with all the tools that are available today, and in similar games and programs, is that someone will build these things. If you can imagine it, someone out there is passionate enough and determined enough that they will put in the time to make it happen. Put enough tools in enough people's hands and make sure those tools are usable, accessible, and understandable, and you will get the moon landing. You'll get all kinds of assassinations, you'll get all kinds of remarkable speeches, alongside all the noise and nonsense and misinformation and intentional trolls that you find across all mediums today. It's the video game equivalent of a million monkeys and a million typewriters. We won't just produce Shakespeare. We will produce works that we couldn't have produced before augmented reality became a practical reality. And we will create it in a way that will allow others to riff on it, make their own remixes, create fan fiction about it, and share it with friends on the other side of the planet. We will also create countless pages of nonsense. Now again, none of this is certain, and the connection between this particular game and this potential future might be more tenuous than I am implying here. But seemingly disconnected industries like these do tend to connect in interesting places, and video games do seem to be viable vectors for spreading things like user interfaces and accessible software that might be frightening or unappealing in any other shape. So as a means of popularizing augmented reality and everything that goes with it, this could be one of the more likely potential paths to ubiquity. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a business book, or it's kind of a philosophy of business book. It was actually written by a friend of mine, a guy named Paul Jarvis, who is just a genuinely wonderful human being, and he wrote a book called Company of One. That is about building right-sized businesses rather than building businesses that are meant to scale infinitely. And he does a really, really great job of describing something that I have long felt that it makes more sense if you are keeping track of multiple different metrics of success above and beyond just money to try to figure out what metrics actually matter and how you can make a living in accordance with those priorities. And in his case, that has meant putting a cap on the amount of money that he's going to earn from a particular project. It's meant building things in such a way that he doesn't have to go out and hire a bunch of people and invest in a bunch of infrastructure. It's basically saying, here's what I want out of life. How do I build a business or businesses that allow me to accomplish that rather than trying to build a business that will earn you tons of money and then figuring out how to build a life around that business? So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Company of One by Paul Jarvis. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a list of tour dates and figure out where I'm going to be next on the speaking tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. And you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of those. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.